My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is the Mission Innovation Podcast. We really have to look at what percentage of our communication and attention is focused on mission and purpose versus profit, task, and margin. So if you think about it in an average day, uh, from the questions we ask to the things we talk about in meetings to the things we recognize to the stories that we tell, what percentage of our time is really devoted to talking about the real difference that our work makes? Elizabeth McLeod is a millennial and cum laude graduate of Boston University who recently wrote a letter that went viral on LinkedIn. She wrote the letter on behalf of millennials everywhere to management everywhere. The letter was about the need for meaning at work. Oh, and by the way, millennials are defined as individuals born between 1981 and 1996, and they will be 46% of the workforce by 2020. At the end of the letter, Elizabeth stated this, I was raised to believe I could change the world. I'm desperate for you to show me that the work we do here matters, even just a little bit. I'll make copies, I'll fetch coffee, I'll do the grunt work. But I'm not going to help you get a new Mercedes. I'll give you everything I've got, but I need to know it makes a difference to something bigger than your bottom line. John Izzo is a leading business leadership expert, community leader, and author beginning with his book, Awakening Corporate Soul in 1994, and his most recent book, The Purpose Revolution, in 2018. John is a consultant and advises companies in North America, such as IBM, McDonald's, HP, Verizon, and Coca-Cola, as well as being a teacher, researcher, and coach on leadership and workplace values. He joins us today on the Mission Innovation Podcast in conversation on meaning at work. John, how did this journey of speaking, writing, and impacting meaning at work begin for you? Well, you know, uh, first of all, it's great to be here. And, you know, I began my uh, career as a Presbyterian minister and uh, served a couple of churches and found myself in 1983 in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, pastoring a church there. And, you know, I was just a young guy. I was only, you know, 23, 24 years old at the time, something like that. And here I am you know, uh, with in this community that literally was being devastated by the closing down of the steel mills. Uh, and many of the people in my church uh, were, uh, you know, supervisors or kind of low-level leaders uh, inside those steel mills. And I remember one uh, man in particular, his name was Hollis, and Hollis was an elder in our church. And and uh, you could tell he was probably about 55 years old at the time. And he was one of those guys that you could tell that he had been an incredibly bright light, you know, in his life. You could see it uh, in his eyes. But, but you could also see that the experiences he had had in work over those last uh, 10 years had literally uh, sapped his soul. Uh, the energy, the vitality that he had within him had literally been drained by the way he had been treated at work and watching this kind of drama happen around him. 
And uh, as a young man, uh, you know, even though I had never really given a thought at all to working in the corporate world or advising organizations, uh, this kind of seed was planted for me. Is this the way work has to be? You know, I myself had this deep sense of calling, had this deep sense that, you know, work had meaning and it was noble. And so, uh, you know, long story short, I wound up going back a few years later, get a PhD in communication, thinking I would go teach uh, preaching in the seminary somewhere. And, uh, you know, got a fire in the belly for the impact work had on people's lives. And could one, in fact, infuse the workplace with soul and spirit? And that's really how the journey began. And now, you know, you know, many, many decades later, uh, you know, I've made a life out of helping companies and leaders to uh, infuse places with soul and dignity. So that's how the journey started. John, given your experience, the work that you've done, why does the issue of meaning at work matter in the first place? I'm fascinated um, by uh, a research of a woman named Amy Rosinski at Yale University that's now been you know, replicated by many others all over the world who, who wanted to look at the way people look at their work and the impact that it has on things we care about as leaders. So Amy kind of you know, discover that there really were three ways that people saw their work. First, some people see the work they do as just a job. I'm literally trading my life for money for other things that I need. Uh, second, some people see the role that they're in uh, as a career. I'm really doing this for myself. I'm doing this to learn, to grow, to, you know, uh, to develop myself and get experiences that will allow me to do something else that I want to do. And third, she discovered that some people, you know, see their work as a calling. And, you know, those of us from uh, the Christian tradition know from the Latin word vocatio, you know, meaning they really have a sense that the work they're doing is aligned with their values and, they, and, it, and it aligns with some deep desire they have to serve. Now, what's really interesting about Amy's research is she, she discovered that the work you do is not actually a very good predictor of how you see your work. So uh, in the healthcare setting, there are surgeons who see their job as just a job, and we all know that's true. There are nurses who see their job as just a job, and there are housekeepers who see their job as a calling. But where it really gets interesting is she discovered that if you measure the, the outcomes we care about as leaders as an individual, how happy someone is, how committed they are, how engaged they are, how much they perform, whether they call in sick, uh, you know, whether they provide great service or not. It turns out people who see their job as a calling perform better on almost every metric we care about as leaders than people who see their job as a, a career or as a job. And they're happier, less stressed, more resilient, a lot of things that people care about individually. So the reason I say that is that, you know, this is why the stakes are so high. And in healthcare, I think everyone would agree, because I've been working in healthcare for a long time, that it just keeps getting harder and harder. You know, when I first started working in healthcare as a manager of organization development at Kaiser Permanente uh, in the early 1990s, uh, people would say, it can't get any worse than this, right? Um, but anybody who's been around the last 20-something years knows that, you know, healthcare has gotten more and more challenging in terms of cost and, and resources. And so uh, I think if we 
put those two things together. When people have a sense of calling, a sense of purpose, they're more resilient, they perform better, they're happier. We need to care about this. So I guess that before we even talk about how to nurture it, I think it's just recognizing how important this is to some very hard metrics that we care about, like engagement, commitment, calling in sick, performance. We've talked about the why, and now we should talk about the how. How might meaning be nurtured at work? Yeah, so now let's now think about the two things that might nurture that sense of purpose, both in an individual and in a system, right? And so now we have to talk about the leader and the individual. So start, let's start with the leader. Let's talk about some things that, that leaders do. And, uh, and it seems to me that there, there are a number of things that are absolutely essential for leaders. The first thing is we really have to look at what percentage of our communication and attention is focused on mission and purpose versus profit, task, and margin. So if you think about it in an average day, uh, from the questions we ask to the things we talk about in meetings to the things we recognize to the stories that we tell, what percentage of our time is really devoted to talking about the real difference that our work makes? Uh, we do a lot of coaching with executives where we're literally coaching them to be more purpose-focused leaders. And we do audits as a part of that. And one of the fascinating things is leaders might be shocked to know, and by the way, no different in healthcare that about 75 to 80% of our communication and the questions we ask are about task and margin rather than about mission and purpose. So the first thing as a leader is to really watch the messaging. And, and my sort of provocative belief is that if anything, it ought to be over 50% about mission and purpose and less than 50% about task or margin or profit. So that's the first thing is really examining the questions we ask the comments we make, the stories we tell, and the things we recognize. So that's the first gate, if you will. So then the second gate uh, for leaders uh, is really to look at how we, we talk about uh, uh, jobs. Uh, one of the things we talk about in my book, The Purpose Revolution, is the difference between job purpose and job function. Uh, and when we really talk about uh, jobs uh, in terms of their purpose rather than their function, all kinds of wonderful things happen. Now, let's take, for example, in healthcare, one of the less glamorous jobs, just as a great example. So let's say you're a housekeeper in a hospital, right? We could say, what's the function of that job? Well, the function of that job is to clean rooms. It's to, you know, in some cases they might serve meals. In some cases, you know, uh, they, they do these various tasks. But what's the purpose of that job? Well, the purpose of that job might be to uh, bring happiness uh, to every person that they meet, many of whom are suffering. It might be to uh, avoid infections that could in fact complicate or even kill someone. Uh, and so the, 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 so from recruiting all the way through the way we talk to people day to day about jobs, we have to really talk about job purpose rather than job function. And then the third gate is really asking uh, as a leader, how do I consistently keep line of sight to purpose for everyone in the organization? And by line of sight, what I mean is, can people really see day in and day out how their work is making a difference? So you might say, how do we keep 
line of sight to purpose? Well, here's you know a few simple examples. Do we begin every meeting asking the question, how has anyone uh, really seen someone on this team or yourself really make a difference since the last time we've been together? It means I'm consistently bringing in letters and notes and emails and stories of patients and, and customers who have said, this is the difference that you've made from me. And I'm even consistently, when I can, bringing in those voices to tell people the difference they're making. Uh, one of the things I think every hospital, for example, in the world ought to do at least once a year, if not more often, is to bring in families, patients, and people who have been impacted by their staff over the last year or six months and have an event where these people get to tell their story. Uh, and bring the bring the Kleenex, right? Um, because we think that people know this, but we have to keep this line of sight where people never forget. Oh, I, my job is more than just a job. I'm really making a difference. So those three gates, I think, are the most important. And maybe one last one is for the leader to really make sure that they are connected to their own purpose. So when we work with organizations, one of the things we do. Is, is lead every leader to identify their personal purpose. And this is not only happening in healthcare, but Unilever, one of the largest conglomerates in the world, uh, literally has every leader across the globe identifying their personal purpose. And they'll tell you that it's, because I've talked to them, it's made a huge difference in, in engaging team members to have leaders who go into a meeting and say, by the way, I'm Kevin, my purpose is. So literally they'll begin that when they introduce themselves instead of saying, hey, I'm Kevin, I'm the vice president of, hey, I'm Kevin, my purpose is. And just that kind of language consistently coming from leaders can make a big difference. So I think those are the kinds of things leaders need to be thinking about. Well, your stories remind me of uh, a story you may have heard of before as well, that uh, in asking a driving instructor at the Department of Motor Vehicles what their job is, uh, one particular instructor or tester didn't state that he was a, a driving instructor. He stated that he helps to transition teenagers to adulthood. I love it. I love it. Very different. Very different purpose. Yeah, yeah. Which, which by the way, is is a great you know bridge. I think uh, to the other side of this conversation, right? So we've talked a little bit. These are the things that leaders do. But one of my perceptions is that over the last, uh, you know, I've been kind of in this in in conversation about corporate culture and employee engagement, I guess, for like, you know, 30, 30 plus years now. And, and one of the interesting things is that uh, over that last 30 years, about 90% of the attention when it comes to nurturing purpose or culture is focused on what leaders do, right? So we spend almost all of our time talking about, well, if leaders would just do this, then there'd be more purpose, more engagement, more vitality, more service. But, but relatively little time asking, how do we activate the individual to really be connected to purpose themselves, to engage themselves? So one of the things I love about your story about the driving instructor is one of the things we've learned is that the simple act of getting every person in an organization or on your team, identifying their personal purpose and asking, how can I live my purpose? And how am I living my purpose in my job, in my role, is a profoundly powerful act 
for us as leaders. And, and most people have never been led into that conversation. So this driving instructor discovered that for himself. But now I imagine I've got several thousand people who work for me who've never really been asked that question, never given a chance to articulate their own purpose. And, uh, and, and one of the backdrops to that, especially for mission-driven organizations, and I lo- especially those who are in, let's say, a faith-based healthcare who are listening to this podcast, you may think, well, people have a sense of purpose because we have these great mission and these great values that we stand for. But research shows if you, add, if you measure people's engagement, commitment, and loyalty to an organization and track it against two variables, how much is the organization clear on its values and how much do they believe in the organization's values? Second variable how clear are people on their own personal values or purpose and how much do they feel they're getting to live it day in and day out in their work? The latter is a much, much, much stronger predictor of commitment and engagement than believing in the organization's values, which again, doesn't mean that's not important, but think about how little energy most systems have on people identifying their own purpose, their own values, and asking, how can I live those in my work? So a lot of the work that we do, and, and maybe in the Catholic tradition, we often talk about it as formation work that is often not done with individuals in organizations. John, I know you devote considerable time to coaching leaders on these themes. What trends or questions are arising among them regarding meaning and purpose in work? Well, you know, two of the, one of the really interesting trends, it'll seem like an aside, but you'll see why I thought of it, is that uh, LinkedIn did a, a huge study uh, around this question of purpose all over the world. And, uh, and one of the interesting things was the two most purpose-focused generations across the globe were the millennials, not a surprise, uh, but, the, but almost as purpose-focused were the baby boomers. And it's not an accident, by the way, that the, the millennials are the children of, of the baby boomers. But what's interesting is a lot of baby boomers at the end of their careers really saying, hey, you know, I've, uh, you know, I don't really want to end my career with it just being about money, just being about task. So one of the things I'm noticing with leaders is uh, some of these leaders at the end of their career really starting to say, what's my legacy going to be? You know, what am I really going to be remembered for? Uh, what's the real difference that I can leave behind me that's going to last? And then you have a group of young leaders who are much more purpose-focused from the beginning of their careers. So one of the things I find, I work with a lot of entrepreneurial organizations as well, and I'm finding especially a lot of young entrepreneurs, this idea that that my company, my work should both have a purpose and have a profit, should have a social conscience and, you know, uh, you know, be profitable is kind of hardwired in their thinking. So they don't live in this kind of Byzantine world that I think many of us grew up in. Well, you know, work was about work. And then in your spare time, you made a difference. So I think one of the real trends I see with young leaders is uh, they don't make this distinction. They will not sacrifice purpose simply for, you know, having a job that, 
you know, uh, is just a job. You know, 50% of millennials say they would take a pay cut to work for a company or a role that gave them a sense of purpose. And I see that mirrored in my, in my coaching work uh, with leaders. Wow. Willing to take a pay cut to have work that's meaningful and makes a difference. That seems to highlight that these individuals are experiencing a searching tension in their work lives. Yeah, there remains now, and I think it's growing, a tension between uh, the, uh, so let's take in the two different worlds, in the non-healthcare world, or certainly in the true in the for-profit healthcare world, right? And in a lot of the corporate settings I'm in, this tension between the focus on short-term profits and deliverables uh, and the uh, deeper conversation and long-term uh, commitments that are required for a business to be sustainable in every sense. I feel that tension is really there for leaders. So one of the the things I really feel is that people wonder, how do I bring my soul to work in that environment, right, with those pressures on me? And then I think in healthcare, you know, the unrelenting pressure just to survive financially uh, and to make ends meet, so to speak, uh, is one of the real tensions that people feel. And I think that um, it causes maybe this, um, this, this feeling about we're, we're almost at, we become like bimodal, almost like, uh, you know, we have two, two, uh, two people. We have me, the leader who has to drive people hard and drive for results. Then me, the leader who cares about purpose and spirit and I think for leaders, it's a very unhealthy tension. I'm dealing with this right now, interestingly, with an entrepreneurial organization I'm working with, and I'm coaching the CEO. And he actually will say to me in one breath, my God, I really want to create a culture where people have a sense of purpose and they see what difference we're making. And then a few minutes later, he'll say, but I got to keep my, my foot on people's throats. Otherwise, you know, we might go out of business. And I think in a funny way, that mirrors what I feel the tension that exists sometime for leaders. And I try to help them see these things are not, you know, uh, mutually exclusive, that by nurturing the spirit, by nurturing the soul, you actually enhance the possibility of surviving in this difficult world. Or as Lao Tzu said, the soft overcomes the hard. Everyone knows it, but few practice it. So in healthcare, for example, the harder things get, the irony is the more we have to double down, to use a betting analogy, on purpose, on spirit. Because these are the very engine that allow us to be adaptable to change and to thrive amidst so many challenges. And yet, as long as leaders live in this Byzantine world, I got to either be the hard driver or I got to be the soul guy or gal. No, I've got to actually be both all the time. And they're not incongruous. I see that as a real tension for leaders. Taking a step back, do you also see that there are certain bigger changes, perhaps systemic changes that need to occur for this to take a greater evolutionary step? Yeah, you know, uh, obviously one of the one of the tensions is, uh, I referred to it a moment ago, but I'll kind of now give it with exclamation points, is this short-term versus long-term. And, and ironically, I think the whole 
society, the whole world is caught up in that. You know, take something like climate change, where you say, you know, if we sacrifice a little now, uh, the long-term savings would be huge. But it's so hard to get people to make those short-term changes, though they may cause some, you know, moderate level of pain, even though the gain in the long term would be exponential. I feel that tension really is one that we have to somehow resolve. And you see it with some companies like Unilever starting to say, we're not going to do traditional quarterly reporting. We're not going to start predicting, you know, what our results are going to be going forward. Um, so you see some pushback against Wall Street and the short-term thinking that erodes uh, the uh, long-term focus on, on, on the work we're doing. I think that's one real systemic thing that, that has to be dealt with because as long as leaders are rewarded for that, uh, you know, things won't change. Uh, you know, in Japan for many years, I don't think it's true anymore, CEOs were bonused on how their companies performed five to 10 years after they retired or were no longer the CEO. Now think about that model of beginning to think differently about how we even reward leaders as opposed to now where they're rewarded often for short-term price jumps in the stock, which means cutting costs and often decimating the kind of uh, the uh, capacity of the organization. So I think this short-term thinking is is a is a really uh, a big big one uh, for me, and I don't, I don't know how we're going to solve it, but I see people starting to push back against it, which is a, a really hopeful beginning, anyway. John, if you had someone reach out to you who's who's not an influential leader, they're part of an organization, they want to see culture evolve and and change in the direction that we're speaking about today. What advice would you offer them? Yeah, that's a great question because many of the people listening say, John, this is great. If only I could get my CEO to think this way. So first of all, I believe change begins wherever you are in whatever room you're in. And, and one of the ways we uh, take full responsibility in our lives is to know that in whatever room we're in and whatever position we're in, that's where change begins. So here's a few ideas. The first thing is, uh, if you lead a team, then start doing this with your team. Have your team identify their purpose. Uh, coach each one of your people to identify their personal purpose. Start to make your communication about purpose, your communication about the difference that we're making, and do that with your team. The second thing is at the next level up, you know, while everyone else is talking about task in that meeting, you be the one to bring up a story about the real difference that you made or a person who asks a question about our mission and our purpose while others are only talking about task or, or margin. Um, begin to ask different questions Questions like, what do we want our legacy to be on this project? How do we want the world to be different, right? You know, one of the most powerful things that we can do to be a change agent is simply to ask a different question. And then the final thing is, um, you know, uh, just remember that 
often big changes in organizations happen from the ground up. And I'll give you two very simple examples. We were working with a large hospital, Catholic hospital in the Midwest a number of years ago, where the soul had really been diminished in in many, many ways. They had a new CEO come in who really believed in this, but was really struggling to get people to start to think differently again. And a group of frontline team members, housekeepers, nurses, pharmacy techs, decided to start meeting once a a week, and they called themselves the Respiriting Committee. And it's a story I tell actually in my book, Stepping Up. And uh, make a long story short, they just started meeting every week and asking this question, what can we do to re-spirit this organization and get it focused again on the real reason while we're here? And every week, more people started joining them. Within several months, they literally had about 60 people who were meeting every week on their own time to say, what can we do? And the one rule they had was, we won't talk about what anybody else needs to do. We'll only talk about something we can do when we leave the room in our role. Within a few months, the CEO kind of really got wind of this and said, do you mind if I come to your meeting? You know, I hear you're doing this and it's amazing. I'll make a long story short, totally turned the hospital around, you know, 3000 people and literally at gas stations, people would come up to people in uniform and go, my God, what happened at Mercy? You know, something happened there. What, What the heck happened? And But the role of that group of people who just started meeting and saying, what can we do? So here's the other thing I would say. If you're an organization that you feel does not have the level of spirit, purpose that you'd like, find a few colleagues, team members across the organization who agree with you and then start meeting, but make sure you talk about what you can do, not what someone else needs to do. And you'd be amazed at, at, at what can happen if you do that. So there are some suggestions. Many times to have a different conversation, you need to be asking different questions. And I'm just wondering, what questions do you hear people asking? Yeah, I think so. So one of the questions is, how can I be my most authentic self uh, when there are times when that authentic self is not aligned with what I see in the system, Right. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's a tension that is, is always going to be there when you're in community. It's almost like a marriage, right? If I'm married to someone, I actually give up part of my freedom, uh, by being in any community, I'm giving up part of my freedom, not my freedom to still be who I am, but to recognize I'm not always going to be aligned with the the community in a full sense. Uh, and so I think we, we, we have to be careful around the desire for perfection, in terms of alignment between the systems we're in and our own uh, sense of self. So I think one of the questions that, that I encourage people to ask is, how can I be my most authentic self in this system that I'm in, regardless of what the rest of the system is doing, right? So I think this whole thing about focusing on needing others to be aligned for me to be myself, is a real trap for many people. So that's why I'm always pulling people back to the with the two what I call the two most empowering questions. What part are you playing and what can you do, right? To live your values, to move the organization towards purpose. So I think one of the things I see people wrestling with all the time is this paralysis that comes when I feel like I got it 
but the system, whatever the system is, doesn't have it. And so, um, you know, and of course the system is actually only a composite of all us as individuals anyway. So the more I can come back to focus on myself, what can I do? What can I do today? So really having people really back in that place of, of, of personal responsibility and focus gets you out of this trap of worrying about the disconnect. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times where you go, my soul cannot be itself in this system. And some people will have to make that choice, right? Um, but it's usually not the first choice we have to make. John, just out of interest, who have been mentors in your life? Who have been the people who've had the biggest influence on you and why? Well, you know, I, I go back to, uh, you know, early in my career and and, and late in my career, right? So, um, you know, early in, in my career, uh, I think of uh, a woman named Trudy Sop that I worked for when I worked for the city manager's office in the, in the city of San Diego. And I think about the fact that, uh, that uh, you know, she would always ask me this question when I had a project. She would say, what's your holy grail in this project? What's the thing that would get you up in the morning and make you feel like it really mattered <laughs> that you were successful in this project? And, and, and I've often told that story to leaders over the last, you know, 35 years and, and asked, you know, when's the last time you asked somebody who's on a project, what's your holy grail on this project? What's the thing that really matters to your values, right? To the things that you care about. And I think she was a great mentor to me for leaders not to be afraid to ask those kinds of questions. And, and she had a big impact on, on my career and my view of leadership in, in a whole lot of ways. And then in terms of some people who really uh, are influencing me now, you know, I think of people like uh, Paul Pullman, the CEO of Unilever who, you know, from the first day on his job at Unilever said, well, I don't think they could, they can fire me in my first month. So let me do all the provocative things in the first month. So in the first month, he said, let's really shift this whole company to be about sustainability. Let's actually become a beacon to create the most sustainable company in the world. Or Dolph Vendenbrink, the former CEO of Heineken Mexico, who's now running Heineken in Asia. And Dolph, when he first went to Heineken in Mexico, which is the largest Heineken company in the world, uh, he put his team through an experience to first talk about what their personal purpose was and then to talk about what's the purpose of our company. And they literally came up with a purpose to uh, create a better Mexico that they wanted to be a company that had such a positive influence that they literally could help make the culture of Mexico, the entire country, a better place. And they've done all kinds of things from tackling domestic violence to building the most sustainable brewery in the world. But one of the things is I am so inspired by leaders who are leading like these two uh, men and other women that I meet who are literally putting their careers and lives on the line to shift their systems towards making a difference and making a profit. And so these people continue to inspire me and the good work that they're doing. So from the beginning of my career to this day, I've continued to find people who remind me that some really good things are happening. John, thanks for offering your time and insight. 
As we close, we often ask guests if there's a poem they would like to close out our time with. And I believe you have a poem to offer us. Yeah, you know, uh, one of my favorite poems of all time is a very short poem by Rainer Rilke, the German poet called The Walk. And it's really a poem about what happens when we create a different vision for the future, even if we're not there yet, and the way it changes us. And one of the things I feel about this whole movement is there is a yearning that we have and the naming of that yearning, whether you're the CEO or a young person starting your career, is itself the change we're trying to seek. So wonderful poem called The Walk. Here's how it goes. My eyes already dance on the sunny hill far ahead of the path I have just begun. And we are grasped by that which we cannot grasp, because it has its own inner light, even from a distance, which changes us, even if we do not reach it, into something else which hardly sensing it, we already are. And a gesture waves us on, mirroring a wave within, but what we feel is the wind upon our face. Thanks, everyone. I'm Kevin Murphy. This is the Mission Innovation Podcast.